Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the House of the Temple in Washington, D.C., this is the Tyler's Place Podcast. I am your host, Maynard Edwards, 32nd Degree, KCCH, brought to you by the Supreme Council of the Scottish Rite, Southern Jurisdiction for the United States of America. Before we get started, I've got to congratulate all the guys who have been honored. Our list of honor men is available right now at scottishrite.org. These are all the guys who are going to become Knight Commanders of the Court of Honor, the guys who wear the red hats. And all of our guys who are going to be receiving their 33rd degree, our white hats, if you will. And that's such a huge honor. So please go look at that at scottishright.org. Find the guys from your valley. Make it a point to congratulate them and pass on my fraternal congratulations as well. The email address is podcast at scottishright.org. That comes direct to me. I read and answer every last one of them. Secondly, make sure you check out all the apps in the App Store, whether you've got a Google Play account or whether you do the iPhone. Just go to the App Store, search Scottish Rite. You're going to find a couple of different things. Your Valley probably has an app. You're going to want to grab that. But also, you're going to get that Scottish Rite app, which is kind of like our version of Facebook. Download it, and you can chat with Scottish Rite Masons from all across the country, share pictures, all that stuff. Also, the Scottish Rite Journal app, it's my favorite thing because when I'm like at the doctor's office or in line at the grocery store, no more expired magazines, no more reading the tabloid headlines. I can pop open the Scottish Rite Journal right on my phone, no matter where I am, and catch up with what's happening here in the Scottish Rite and get some great Masonic light on the go, if you will. This is something I'm very excited about. We, we live in a very divided time. I don't think I need to tell anybody that. I mean, you can't turn on television, you can't look on social media, certainly not on social media, and not see the division that is surrounding us right now. And so there's been a call for Masons to lead the communities they're in towards civility. And Brother Russ Charvonia is heading up something called the Masonic Family Civility Project. And Brother Russ is a past Grandmaster of California, and he joins us now. Brother Russ, this is this is exciting to me because I think this is something that is way, way overdue. Tell me about the Masonic Family Civility Project. What is it? We started this effort at the Conference of Grandmasters in North America in February 2014 in Baltimore, Maryland where we suggested to the brethren that the world about us was becoming increasingly uncivil and that if left unchecked, the world may well become a place that we're not willing to leave to our children and our grandchildren. And then we further suggested that as Masons, we have the principles, the values, the symbols, the language of civility, of how to treat each other with respect and dignity. And that was the birth of of this effort uh, to where it is now truly a worldwide effort. We have accomplished an awful lot, but we clearly have a lot more that we need to be doing. Okay, so how does this 
manifest itself, if you will? I mean, how, how does it how does it work? What do you do? We since February of 2014, we have had a task force of brothers from across North America who have met every month and have identified and created various resources uh, to help to, to make available to grand jurisdictions across the globe. And these resources uh, include a civility toolkit, a civility scorecard, um, bookmarks, all kinds of different things to help the brothers to be more civil in their own behavior and to help to create greater civility within their own walks of life, in their own communities, in the Masonic lodges, their houses of worship, their schools, workplaces, wherever. And all of this, uh, these resources are housed on Masonic civility.org. Um, in addition, we've created a Masonic Civility Ambassadors Network. It is truly worldwide. We have ambassadors in Mexico and Brazil and Serbia and Israel and just all over the place. Um, so that's how we're really spreading the word and spreading the resources. So this whole thing, this is not about not having difficult discussions. This is not about avoiding conflict necessarily. This is not about squashing dissenting opinions by any means. This is more about finding a way to discuss and express opinions in a way that's that's fruitful and, and I guess comfortable for everyone involved in the conversation. Well, and you're, Maynard, you're capturing exactly what we struggled with when we first started this effort. Um, I mentioned the Civility Task Force, and we spent the first four months of our meetings trying to define what civility was, uh, both inside the Masonic realm and outside. And we were just struggling like crazy. We were having a heck of a time until I finally did what I should have done at the outset, which was Google it. And I checked out, you know, I typed in civility on Wikipedia, and lo and behold, it says, see incivility. And all of a sudden, we felt kind of vindicated. Well, no wonder we're struggling with putting our fingers around exactly what it is. It is so much easier to describe what civility is not than what it is. Well, there is now a definition of civility on Wikipedia, and that's a definition that we were able to get submitted and have accepted. And Freemasonry is mentioned very prominently in there. I've had many people tell me that civility is just about being nice and polite and abiding by rules of etiquette. And, and maybe even avoiding difficult subjects. And I've had others tell me, no, civility has nothing to do with that. Civility is just about being able to deal with difficult subjects. And I think it's somewhere in between. I don't think we can engage in complex, um, controversial discussions unless we're treating each other with a decent, a reasonable degree of respect and dignity. Um, you have to have that before we can have any kind of deeper conversation. But boy, what civility allows you to do is to be able to talk with somebody who has different opinions and is passionate about them and be able to come to a greater good. As Masons, we're sort of honor-bound to not talk about politics, religion, those divisive-type things when the lodge door closes. But out in the communities at large, it can be pretty challenging to, you know, kind of remember that. So as Masons, can you give us some best practices we might want to follow in looking for civility? So I'm going to go back to our Masonic teachings. And the very first thing we're taught when we knock on the doors 
of the lodge and cross the threshold is that we are here to learn to subdue our passions and to improve ourselves in masonry. Why is that the very first thing? I believe it's because we cannot begin to improve ourselves until we first learn to subdue our passions. And the very best symbol within a lodge to me on that is the point within the circle. And I interpret that in a few different ways. That point, of course, is us, the individual who's striving to become a better person. And the first thing we're taught to do is to take the compasses and circumscribe a circle around our prejudices and our attitudes and our passions and our behaviors. And I take that a little bit further in that I think that creates a boundary that we need to have a sensitivity of when our actions are in beginning to intrude upon the rights and enjoyment of another person. And when that happens, we need to have that awareness, that sensitivity to then back off. This isn't meaning or saying that we should not be passionate because without passion, nothing worthwhile would get accomplished. But that's a big problem with society right now is we all think we have the, the right to share everything that we think and feel no matter what with no restraint. And guess what? That restraint, that, that right applies to me, but not to anybody else. Uh, no, you need to police yourself on that. And when we talk about social media, um, that's where I think we get ourselves in trouble. So one of the things that I will oftentimes do when I see a group of, of Masons communicating on social media in a way that I think is not terribly Masonic, I will simply put hashtag Masons for civility. And it seems to generally do one of two things. Either they're blocking me and I can't see where, what they're doing, or it tends to moderate the conversation and just gently remind them of, of their Masonic values. And then another important concept, I think, and I'm going to share this with you in a little more detail. From the day I was installed senior steward of the lodge, worshipful Jack Joe, of blessed memory, at the end of every meeting would come up next to me, put his arm around me, and proceed to tell me what I had done wrong. Well, fast forward now three and a half years later, I'm master of the lodge, and it's now the December meeting. It's my final meeting as master. And I finally nailed it. I'm convinced I didn't make a mistake. And I'm determined to get out of that lodge before Jack rains on my parade. So I gather the lodge closed. I make a beeline for the door. And Well, for an older guy, Jack was pretty darn quick because he caught up to me about where the altar was. Puts his arm around me. I've got my arm cocked. I'm ready to give it to him right in the gut. How dare you? But something stopped me. And I finally realized what Jack was doing. While I thought I was at the pinnacle of my Masonic career, he realized I had a lot more growth to do. I had a lot of, lot more room for self-improvement, and he didn't give up on me. And I think that we need to remember that we are all mentors. And when I look at that point within the circle symbol, you see those two parallel perpendicular lines, which are said to represent our patron saints and masonry. To me, those are also my Masonic mentors. And what Worshipful Jack was doing for me and with me was he was gently admonishing me of my errors. Did anybody else know what he was saying to me? Of course not. For all they knew that, you know, he were talking about where we're going for a nice tea afterwards. But he admonished me privately and he praised me very publicly. An example, I think, worthy of emulation. Further, he was 
whispering good counsel in my ears, and he never stopped that. And I needed that, and frankly, I missed that today. That's what I think we can do when we see a brother erring. We need to go up to him, put our arm around him, and gently admonish him of where we think we are, he is erring, and whisper that good counsel in his ear. Is it always going to be accepted and appreciated? Of course not. But I think we owe it to him to try to help him in that regard. And I think all too often we're afraid to do that. Past Grandmaster of California, Brother Russ Charvonia, thank you so much for joining us and talking about such an important topic, Masonic civility. Civility, it's one of our... Yeah, we're charged with it, guys. We really are charged with it. And if you want more information, go to MasonicCivility.org. Russ told me off-air that they're looking for ambassadors in different states to help spread the word on this, to teach the program. So if this is something that speaks to you, and it really does call to me, check it out, MasonicCivility.org. In a divided time, we as Masons have the chance to lead our communities and certainly our families and definitely ourselves into a more civil time. So, Brother Russ, thank you so much for joining us. This is the Tyler's Place Podcast. This is the Tyler's Place Podcast. I'm your host, Maynard Edwards, 32nd Degree KCCH. Thanks so much for joining us. Mark Oldno now joins us. He is our educational correspondent, 33rd Degree from the Valley of Santa Fe in New Mexico. Brother Mark, as we get into the heat and dog days of summer, let's talk a little bit about what light the summer brings us. Well, hey, you know, this time of the year, I like to get out and I, I, I'm an amateur astronomer. And I was reminded the other night, just kind of looking up at the uh, at the moon, that it's another symbolism of reflection, more than the pun, that we see every day in the in the night sky. And and the moon has a very interesting connection with Moses and with our connection to divinity. When Moses went up the mountain, the mountain Sinai, or by another name Horeb. Sinai is actually a uh, derived from the, the root name of the Sumerian deity of the moon, and Horeb, another name for the same mountain, means glowing. So the mountain reminds us that there's something about light up there in those heights where, where Moses received the tablets from the, the pillar of fire, again, another symbol of the light. The Scottish Rite reminds us throughout all of our degrees that our soul, that our very being, is illuminated by a divine ray, by a light. So at one level, at a really simple level, perhaps it's not surprising that, that when Moses went up, he was to receive the law, to receive the, 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 the first real message from God, was on a mountain of light and by a pillar of light. Well, it's interesting that if you look at what the Bible says about Moses when he descended, and here we're specifically talking about the passage, Exodus 34, 29. And it talks about Moses descending with the two tablets. Again, he's just spoken with God. He's descending from Mount Sinai. And this is just before the incident with the, with the golden calf. And it describes Moses as, in, in most translations, it says that his face shone, that his face was shining, radiating light as he descended. But what's interesting, in some 
translations. So it actually says that Moses descended and his face had horns. H-O-R-N-S. Little horns. The, the confusion occurs because the word in Hebrew for shining or radiating and the word for horns come from the same root, karen. Now, it's interesting if you look into the linguistics of the debate that goes on about how this should be properly be translated. I mean, the assumption for most of us is, well, gee, it can't be horns with Moses. Horns are bad things, right? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that particularly in the Old Testament, it's also true of the New Testament, there's all kinds of words that we take for granted in the English translations that, that are really ambiguous in the Hebrew. Um, the apple in the Garden of Eden was actually more likely a pomegranate. That perhaps the original scribes of, of the Torah put that, in, put that ambiguity into place quite intentionally. Um, if you look at the horns, if you consider horns, and again, consider a face radiating light, if you were to look at a halo, and, and it's, it's worth noting that, that in many traditions, when somebody is in, um, oh, in Hinduism or yoga is in the state of samadhi, or they're in a, a, a trance or a, 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 a relationship with the divinity, but they're lost in that adoration of the beloved and of God, that their, their, their faces shine. Um, there's, there's a diffuse, almost light that comes out of them. And amongst the great saints, they're literally seen with an aura around them. And that's often seen by even, you know, simple local Joes like you and me, that that light is visible and particularly surrounds their heads. Now, if you were to envision that light, that shining, radiating face and the halo extending up into the celestial spheres, into, into the heavens. It would almost be like a circle kind of cut off. And you could see how the perimeter of that light rising up from the head could be identified or, or be symbolically represented as horns. So, I, you know, I would suggest that the, the scribes pick this word when describing Moses' face coming down, that that. Indeed, it, it meant both light that he radiated, but it also tells us something about the nature of that light, that it was, in fact, a halo or a, or a holy light, a holy radiance. And again, that, that radiance, that sense of that light that surrounded Moses after he spoke with God and came down with the law in his hands was the manifest symbol of that message that he had just received and that he was about to communicate to the people, the first great covenant. And that is something that we are reminded of all of the time in the Scottish Rite, that we have a divine ray, a divine link, that we too, even us average Jones, are connected to the deity by light. Now, I would also suggest, if you've never done it, brethren, just to kind of tie it up a little bit culturally, and you can find this on Google. It's very easy to go into Google Images and just, just type in something like Moses with horns. And you can see a famous statue by Michelangelo at St. Peter's in Rome. Uh, and, it's, and this is where we, we 
he, he literally constructed what he considered his most lifelike sculpture, his most lifelike piece of art. And again, consider everything that Michelangelo sculpted and painted for him to say that this statue was the one he considered the most animated, the most alive. And when you look at it, indeed, Michelangelo's Moses has two little horns on top of them. It's important to remember, or at least to recognize, that the, the association of the horns with the devil, with something evil, was really a fairly late symbolic emergence. It really You, you don't see that very much prior to the Renaissance. Um, horns were really associated with pagan deities uh, and really were symbols of the moon, uh, of, of the reflection of light that they they. They, uh, they represented or communicated very much like I'm, I'm describing about Moses here. The, um, and, and really only recognized as somehow a, a, uh, uh, a bad or a symbol of evil only much later on. So when we go back to the original symbolism, horns are not a, not a bad thing. They're actually a sign that there's a relationship to the divinity. That's Brother Mark Oldno, our educational correspondent here on the Tyler's Place podcast. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. If you've got a question for Mark, a comment, an idea, he loves to hear from you. Podcast at scottishright.org is the email address. Going to do something a little different this month here on the Tyler's Place podcast, and this is going to be a lot of fun. Art DeHoyas joins me now, and this, this is going to be fun. If you've never heard of the Wikipedia game, basically what it is is that you go to a Wikipedia page and you try and figure out, you know, fact and fiction because sometimes they're just not quite right. Celebrities will do this all the time. Like if you look on YouTube, you'll find like, you know, Slash, the guitarist from Guns N' Roses, going through his own Wikipedia page and saying, well, that's true. Okay, that's not true. So we thought it might be fun to do with some of the Masonic Wikipedia pages out there because there's bound to be some mistakes. And to kick it off, Art suggested that we get into the Wikipedia game with the book Morals and Dogma by Brother Albert Pike. You're up to this challenge, right? Absolutely. Let's try it. <clears throat> so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go a little bit by at a time and you can correct or agree. So uh, Morals and Dogma of the Ancient Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry or simply Morals and Dogma is a book of esoteric philosophy published by the Supreme Council, 33rd degree of the Scottish Rite, Southern Jurisdiction of the United States. Um, I don't know that I would say it's esoteric philosophy. I would say that it is the underlying philosophical rationale of the degrees. It's kind of like the background. If you imagine going to a Christmas pageant and there's necessarily some kind of backdrop or something like Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of what morals and dogma is. It's the setting or the philosophy that's set in the background. It doesn't speak specifically to the Scottish Rite philosophy at all times, although it might. It was compiled by Albert Pike, first published in 1871, regularly reprinted thereafter until 1969. An official reprint was re-released in 2011 with the benefit of annotations by Arturo de Hoyas, I know that guy, the Scottish Rite's Grand Archivist and Grand Historian. Uh, no complaints there. All right, all good there. Okay, so contents. Here we go. Okay. This is where we're going to, this is going to get good. Morals and Dogma has been described as a collection, and this is a quote, a collection of 32 essays which provide a philosophical rationale for the degrees of the ancient and accepted 
accepted Scottish Rite. The lectures provide a backdrop. I That's just heard that language somewhere for the degrees by giving lessons in a comparative sure religion, history, and the philosophy. Yeah, that's kind of curious. I, I think I heard up, that also. A lot of great I see that it's put I've in quotation marks, but I don't see the source. I've got some summer vacation stuff. I always share my vacations with the brothers, so hoping to share that with you in the next couple weeks. I think I am the source. Happening. They obviously extracted that from one of my books. Also, we've got biennial session news is going to be coming fast and furious, but it is not properly annotated here. It is not. Miss an episode of the Tyler's Place podcast. But I agree with it. I'm your host, Maynard Edwards, 32nd degree KCCH. I'll catch you next time right here in the Tyler's Place. It's 32 chapters discuss the philosophical symbolism of a degree of Scottish Rite Freemasonry in extensive detail. So far, so good? Uh, well, it really doesn't discuss all of the symbolism of the Scottish Rite in detail. Uh, to me, that sounds like it's discussing the symbols that occur in the degrees. Uh, the digest index part is, of course, accurate, but again, it's more or less background information to help frame the degrees in context. It is not necessarily the philosophy of the Scottish Rite. And Pike's very blunt about that when you read the front of his text. So let's uh, let's jump ahead to some of the uh, okay. more entertaining aspects sure. of this. Um, let's go to influences, All which right. is the section here. One of Pike's influences was the French author Elphas Levi. Levi was a prolific writer on occult topics who, in Pike's day, was considered an expert on pagan mysteries and Gnosticism. Today, he is considered unreliable by scholars. And this is where we get into some of the occulticism that uh, Pike is accused of, I guess. Yeah, it is true um, that Pike was dependent on some of the writings of Elphas Levi, uh, who was a... Uh, uh, it was a Frenchman. His name was originally... Uh, this is the name that he adopted. It was Alphonse Louis Constant. And he was a um, in training to become a Catholic priest, wound up leaving the church, and became interested in occultism and wrote some really influential uh, books on transcendental magic and the history and dogma, uh, things like this. Uh, but, you know, again, you know, although Pike borrowed from these, he didn't borrow from them in the sense of anything dogmatic. And he didn't borrow from parts of it that taught pure occultism or any kind of ritual magic or anything like that. It, w it was more the kind of like quasi, you know, mythical kind of outlook that, that Levy had on things, including Freemasonry. He was a Mason. Um, but so there's, you know, it's kind of hard to like to slice that one up because yes, there's parts of it that are true, and but Pike's dependence was very minimal on Levy, uh, if you compare or Levi, however you want to say it. But uh, when you compare it with how much he borrowed from other authors, for example, Levy or Levi, however it is pronounced, um, this is the guy who drew the famous drawing of Baphomet That's that correct. we all know, and and we get accused of, of you know the whole. Masonic goat nonsense that we get in the Knights Templar with Baphomet and all that stuff, and and it it seems as though a lot of that is made up of whole cloth. Is this the only connection between those things? Is this that Pike used a little bit of this guy's writing in Morals and Dogma? Um, the only hard connection not, I'd say in Morals and Dogma, yes, uh, he did. He was influenced by uh, a book that. Uh, Levy wrote on in trying to interpret the craft degrees, which was, and Levy was influenced, by, of course, by the fact that he was a French Freemason. So, um, you know, Pike wasn't wholly dependent on Levy just here, and I, I shouldn't say dependent, I should say borrowing. It's like if you look at somebody else's work and you say, oh, that's, that's a nice style, 
I'm going to emulate that. And so it's, it's kind of that kind of a borrowing in some places. So let's go to authorized republication in history. After 1969, the copyright of Morals and Dogma was not renewed. Um, that's correct, yeah. Pike's successor in uh, 1947, Pike's successor, Grand Commander John Henry Cowles, noted that some Masonic publications had used large extract from the text, which uh, practice he sought to curtail by adding the following words to the title page, esoteric book for Scottish Rite use only to be returned upon withdrawal or death of recipient. And so that's from 1937. So why that, and it was just because didn't want it quoted? Yeah, well, it's not that it didn't want to quote it, is that Coles discovered that there were Masonic magazines, uh, not just Masonic magazines, magazines and uh, some esoteric magazines uh, that were taking large sections out of Morals and Dogma and publishing it and making money by the fact that they it became filler material for their publications and people were essentially buying uh, a magazine that was made up of large parts of Morals and Dogma. And knowing that it was our publication, he thought, well, you know, this is kind of a ripoff, so we'll, we'll kind of put this disclaimer or this this notice in there. And I, I'm glad that the person who put this on Wikipedia did put it in context because uh, it before people knew about the Coles about John uh, Henry Coles putting this uh, in Morals and Dogma. Uh, you simply got certain copies that had that statement in there, and people are saying, "Look, this is a Masonic secret book. You can't purchase it. Look, it has to be given back to the Masons." You know, I heard that kind of nonsense all the time. Uh, a copy of Morals and Dogma was given to every new member of the Southern Jurisdiction from the early 1900s until 1969. And no, nope, nope. not true. Here's the line that I'm kind of thinking is funny: All restrictions on sales to the general public have been removed. Were there ever really restrictions? There never were restrictions. Um, you know, Pike even <laughs> said that. Is that you know in um, some of the Masonic newspapers of the day, Pike encouraged people, Masons, you know, hey, here's this book, it'll help you. Um, we're encouraging mostly Scottish Rite Masons to get it, but it's certainly not inappropriate for any Mason to get it. And I don't know if there was any case ever where the general public was discouraged from getting a copy of it. So if we have to grade this particular Wikipedia page, I'm I'm in the neighborhood of a D plus or a C minus. Um, I, I think I would give them a C. C? Yeah, C, C minus, somewhere inside of there. It's not bad, um, but it's not good either. That's going to wrap it up with the Tyler's Place podcast, July 2019. Make sure you keep your ears open on the Tyler's Place podcast channel because coming up, we're going to see a lot of great things. I've got some summer vacation stuff. I always share my vacations with the brothers, so I'm hoping to share that with you in the next couple of weeks. Something exciting happening. And also, we've got biennial session news is going to be coming fast and furious from this point out. So do not miss an episode of the Tyler's Place podcast. I'm your host, Maynard Edwards, 32nd degree KCCH. I'll catch you next time right here on the Tyler's Place.